Right, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. We're going to finish the chapter. So Paul writes in verse 19, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So again, just a brief recap. Uh, last time we looked at verses 14 through 18. Really, verses 11 through 22 is one um, main thought. Um, you can break it down, and we have broke it down into three smaller sections because there's quite a bit of material here. You can take a more overview look of it, but we're, we've been taking a somewhat deeper dive on it. But again, what Paul is getting at here in verses 11 through 22 is this concept of the building of the church, the building of the one new man in Christ, the building of this as we saw in verse 22, in verses 21 and 22, this holy temple to the Lord. Um, I'm going to mention this a little later, but uh, Paul uses three main metaphors to explain the church, and all three of them are found in the book of Ephesians. We saw earlier in chapter 1 that the church is the body of Christ. We've seen that in other contexts in 1 Corinthians 12, in Romans 14, uh, or Romans 12 as well. Uh, the church is the body of Christ. Here we see the church is the temple of God. Later on in chapter 5, we're going to see that the church is the bride of Christ. Uh, all of these um, metaphors explain, in part, uh, this relationship that Christ has with the church. Head to body, bridegroom to bride, and then, of course, being God himself and the temple, his dwelling place. So we're going to see that um, really here. But these verses, again, Paul is talking about how this plan that God has set forth, this eternal decree that he set forth that we saw way back in chapter 1, verses 3 and following, where he says, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. So before there was a world, before there was anything, it's kind of almost, you can't properly speak of before when there was no time at that point, but before, for our own sakes, before there was anything, God had purposed to um, choose a people in Christ. Now in chapter 2, we're seeing that plan take, uh, take effect in the world as dead sinners are made alive. We're seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. Um, and then we are saved by grace through faith for the good works that God has prepared before us. And now he talks about this idea of Jew and Gentile, how those who are far off are brought near. You're brought near by the blood of Christ. So that is the, the you know, leading up to this passage here in verses 19 through 22. And now he's going to conclude this uh, section uh, by calling the church here this temple, a holy temple in the Lord, which is how I titled the, the lesson. So we're going to see this temple motif. Uh, I've mentioned this again also in other contexts, this, this idea of the temple. 
uh, God dwelling with his people. That is sort of, in a way, the underlying purpose of, of everything is for God to dwell with his people. Uh, it was the purpose of creation in the first place where he creates a garden temple to dwell with mankind. Uh, when man sinned, he had to be kicked out of that temple. But everything has been working to uh, bring that reality back full circle to God dwelling with his people. So that's why you have, uh, when you look at the Bible as a whole, on the bookends, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, you have God dwelling with his people in the garden and in the new heavens and the new earth. In between, (laughs) from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, is bringing us back to what we lost and beyond in Genesis 1 and 2. So I call it the Emmanuel principle, because Emmanuel, great name for church, means God with us. That's what the phrase means in Hebrew. Emmanuel is God with us. And that is this principle that we see here, this temple motif. Another thing we're going to see in this passage, too, is uh, sort of a theological distinction where uh, theologians will talk about, when they talk about the doctrine of the church, they talk about the qualities of the church. Um, So we've looked at metaphors that describe the church, qualities of the church. If you're familiar with the Nicene Creed at the end, we say that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And you're like, well, where do we get those words? Well, you're going to see that right here in this passage. The church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, right? One new man, one, right? Holy, right? You see there, uh, you are... Uh, fellow citizens with the saints, with the holy ones, so one and holy, built on the foundation of the apostles, apostolic, right? Uh, you are a new household, your fellow citizens, that's Catholic, it's universal. So you've got all four qualities, and we're going to draw this out a little bit more as we go through this, but you've got all four qualities uh, here in, this, in these four verses here. So as we get into the passage here, um, sort of the theme I want to kind of hang over this entire passage here is that Jew and Gentile are being built into a holy temple unto the Lord by the work of Christ. You see that in verses 21 and 22. In whom? In whom? So that who is the whom? That's Christ. So by virtue of our union with Christ, we are being built together um, into a holy temple, into the Lord, being fitted together. Uh, here, uh, Peter draws in this too, where he talks about how Um, individually we are living stones uh, that are being built into a temple so first so we're going to look at uh, three things here Uh, the church being the household of God the church built on a foundation and the church a dwelling place of God Uh, by the household of God I mean we are adopted that's kind of what we see here so as Paul again as Paul comes into verse 19 Uh, He's bringing this argument that he has made since verse 11 to its conclusion. You've got the therefore, you've got the now therefore. He's, that's just, Paul likes to say that. He's drawing this to a conclusion. Therefore, what is the payoff here? What is the, what is the, the thing, the nugget we should take away from this passage? That those who were aliens and strangers, right? We saw that a couple weeks ago, um, In verse 12, at one time, you Gentiles who were without Christ, you were aliens 
and strangers. You were outside looking in. You were not part of the commonwealth. You were treated as foreigners. He says, now you are no longer strangers. You are no longer uh, foreigners. Uh, those words there, uh, xenos, we looked at that. That's stranger. That's other. That's the foreigners. You know, think of, you know, I guess the word that you commonly hear is xenophobia, fear of strangers. Um, it's, it's, the two words, foreigners and strangers, are synonymous, but they do have some slightly different nuances to them. One of them suggests a foreigner in the sense of one who is passing through and staying for a temporary amount of time until they can move on. The other one suggests strangers and foreigners who are coming in who are seeking citizenship, but they do not have the full rights of citizenship. So you've got that, you know, both concepts here. The, the Gentiles, those were the people who, in the old economy, in the old covenant, were outside of everything that was uh, contained within the, the covenant community of Israel. They were foreigners, they were strangers, they were without Christ, without hope, they were without the covenants, without the law, all of those things. I'm drawing not just from Ephesians, but from uh, other passages as well. Romans 9, Romans 3, he talks about that. Uh, they are, but now, right now, because they've been brought near, because those who are far off, Christ preached pre peace to them, to those who are far off, and they've been brought near, not because of their own work, but by the blood of Christ they've been brought near. Now they are no longer strangers. Now they are no longer uh, foreigners. But what are they? They are fellow citizens. right? Paul, you, know, you don't necessarily see it uh, in the English. You might infer it, but... Paul is using a lot of uh, compound words in the Greek here. And one, uh, there's, there's one prefix that he's been putting on a lot of words. And that prefix is the prefix soon, which in Greek means together. right? Think of synergy, working together. Uh, and, this, and this word is sum polites, which means fellow citizens, possessing the same citizenship. Uh, you, you saw this earlier in chapter 2 where in uh, verse uh, 5 of chapter 2, we were dead, but Christ made us alive together, raises us up together, sits together in the heavenly places. Now, fellow citizens. So Paul is using this togetherness. So not only is this talking about a work of God by himself, but also you've got this idea of the communion of the saints. We are being built together. We are fellow citizens. He is making one new man from the two. We saw that in verse 15 last week. One new man from the two. How is that accomplished? Because Christ abolished in his flesh uh, the law of commandments and uh, contained in ordinances. In other words, he fulfilled the law in his life. He fulfilled the law, thereby what was being used as a divider has now been torn down, has now been made annulled. It has been made of no effect because Christ has fulfilled it. That barrier is now gone, and now the two can come together in one new man, and we can be fellow citizens with the saints, literally fellow citizens of the saints. Um, so this is speaking of Gentile inclusion, Gentile addition, 
fellow citizens, other translations. NIV says, you are fellow citizens with God's people. New Living Translation, you are fellow citizens with God's holy people. So, in other words, the Jews are being, or the Gentiles are being included in the commonwealth. They are fellow citizens with the saints who are the, the Jewish people. We are now one big community. So again, remember I was talking about the qualities of the church. One, the church is one. It is no longer Jew, Gentile, Greek, slave, barbarian, free, all these things. It's one new man. That is what Christ is doing in the church. He's building up. He's taking those who are far off. He's taking those who are near. And he's making one new man. One new man. One body. And it's a holy body, too. Not because of our own inherent holiness. It is a holy body in the sense that we are set apart for God's purposes. It is a holy body because we are saints. Again, don't think of like the Roman Catholic idea of saints where you have to work so many miracles and live a holy life. A saint is one who is sanctified by God. A saint is one in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. So we are one and holy. Now, some like to argue that Reformed theology teaches something called replacement theology. And I'm not here to say that I don't know of, you know, that, that no one has taught that. I, I have not read of any Reformed person who teaches that. I'm sure there are some. I have not read one. But it is a common misconception to say that Reformed theology teaches the replacement of Israel. And that's not what, you, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. I think what Paul is saying here when he says the Gentiles are fellow citizens, he's not talking about replacement. He's talking about expansion. He's saying that that wall has been broken down and now the Gentiles can come in and now we're building one new body. The fact that many Jews have rejected this is not replacement. That's the hardness of their own hearts. Paul talks about that in Romans 10. right? When he, in Romans 9, he talks about God's sovereignty and election, but then he does not let the Jewish people off the hook in Romans 10 when he says, but because of the hardness of their heart. Because they had knowledge, they had zeal without knowledge um, that they rejected. And you, we, you, know, you can go back and we looked at those three chapters, how uh, Gentile inclusion, in a sense, is meant to cause and stir jealousy within the Jews, to, you know, to, to draw them back in. Um, but we're not talking replacement, we're talking expansion. We've looked at this, and we're going to look at it again in more fully next week, Lord willing. No, not next week, in two weeks. <laughs> two weeks, Lord willing. But again, look at verse 6 of chapter 3. The mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Inclusion. Expansion. We saw this when we looked at Galatians chapter 3. Verses 26 through 28. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. One new man from the two breaking down all the things that we use to separate people. And at the foot of the cross, we are all one. It's not to obliterate 
uh, ethnic identity. It's not to obliterate gender identity. It's not to obliterate class uh, identity. But at the foot of the cross, in Christ, those distinctions don't matter because you're all one in Christ. Expansion. So what was once confined to a geopolitical nation that is Israel has now been expanded into an international organization called the church that transcends borders. That's why, you know, he says those who are far off, Christ preached peace to, the, uh, peace to those who are far off. He preaches peace to those who are near, bringing them together. That's why the marching orders of the church are to go into all the nations and make disciples. That's why in the book of Acts, the, the mission of the church is, is, uh, is explained in expanding circles of influence from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the world. It's an international organization. Hence, the church is small c Catholic. I always thought it was kind of an a oxymoron to say Roman Catholic. Because you're, you're saying something is universal, but you're confining it to a region. You're confining it to a city. Roman, that doesn't, that's like saying, you know, you know the, the, the old joke, right? Jumbo shrimp or, or honest politician. You know, those two, those two things don't go together, right? No, the church is Catholic. The church is universal. So the glory of Christ in the life of a church is seen in how this one new man forms the household of God, the oikeoi, the, 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 the family. Again, this is speaking of adoption. Uh, Paul will later on talk about households in chapter, chapters 5 and 6, where he talks about how um, the submission to one another in the fear of the Lord works out in family relationships. So you've got chapter 5, verse 21, which kind of serves as an umbrella that covers from 22 all the way through chapter 6, verse 4, or sorry, chapter 6, verse 9. You've got households, wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, children obeying their parents, parents not provoking their children, slaves obeying their masters, masters treating their servants kindly. Uh, again, you know, it, that, those are often referred to as the household codes. Well, here, God is saying, now you are part of my household. In Christ, you are, bringing, you are being, this one new man forms this family of God by adoption. And again, this is something that, is, uh, that the Lord has ordained from eternity past, verses uh, 3 through 14 of chapter 1. This has always been the plan. God is calling his chosen ones together uh, in the world and bringing them into this family, this household. And then this this is a cause for, for praise, right? Which is why in, even in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul occasionally breaks forth in praise as he is bringing this teaching here. We saw this in, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. In particular, you look at verse 17 and 18 of, of, of that chapter. And Paul here, uh, he's, he, he does not cease to give thanks for the Ephesians and praise for them that uh, in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. He wants you to see this 
And that should evoke praise. He's going to jump forth into praise in the last half of chapter 3, in particular verses um, 18 and 19. Again, where he's praying here that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, just think of the language Paul is using there. He's like, know these things so that you can then burst forth in praise. You think of that great paean of praise that Paul has at the end of Romans 11 after going through the entire entirety of you know, his summary of Christian salvation and he gets to the end of chapter 11 and he cannot help but break forth in praise for from him and to him and through him are all things to him be praised forever and ever amen so this should be a cause of praise secondly the church is built on a foundation verse 20 having been so this one new man these fellow citizens, this household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. All right, this, is, this may come as a shock. Maybe you didn't know this, but a house needs a foundation. Okay, I'm sure you all knew that, right? A house needs a foundation. And what better foundation for a house than the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ being the cornerstone. And, you know, you could think of that how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 where he says, he talks about the wise and the foolish builder, the one, in fact, there might be, isn't there like a kid's song on that, right? You know, uh, you know the wise and the foolish builder who build their house on the, the solid rock and they build their house in the sand and when the rains come, that house comes tumbling down, the one that's built in the sand. It's not built on the proper foundation, which is what in that passage Jesus says, the one who hears and obeys what I teach them, that is like the one who builds their house on the rock. Well, here, the church is built on a foundation. In fact, hey, we have a hymn, right? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, right? Uh, Here you have this foundation, and that foundation is Christ is the, the, the chief part of it, but it's also built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, many want to build the church on some other foundation. You know, you've seen this, right? Churches whose foundation is, let's say, the charisma or the personality of their lead pastor, right? You see these big mega churches. And almost always they're because you've got a charismatic, I don't mean charismatic in the you know, speaking in tongue sense, someone who's got a lot of charisma, leader who attracts a bunch of people. And then oftentimes what you see is when that person uh, dies or retires or has to leave because of scandal, uh, whatever the case may be, the church ends up splitting up. Right? There are some who want to keep it going. There are some who want to follow the next new guy. And then there's some who just leave and they go off wherever. Um, so you've got churches built on personality. You've got churches built on programs, right? You go to a church and they've got a program for everything. You know, for the youth, one to three, four to six, seven to nine, you know, young adults, young kind of, 
middle-aged adults, older people, young, you know, married, single, this, that, college age, high school, you know, all these programs. You got churches that are built on politics, and I don't necessarily mean like Republican, Democrat. I'm just talking about you know, uh, you know, the the church just acts kind of political. Do you remember when we looked at? Uh, 1 Corinthians. Now, this is not the foundation, but it's how you build on the foundation. But there in that chapter, Paul is, is uh, rebuking the Corinthians because of their divisions. And he says, first of all, you have to realize you are separating on teachers. The teachers, we're just the ones who build. The foundation is Christ. And we have to be careful on how you build on that foundation. He talks about the gold, the silver, the precious stones, or the wood, hay, and the stubble. Uh, so not you know, necessarily speak about the foundation, but how you build on it. But the foundation supports the structure, and if the foundation is bad, the structure is in danger. Uh, not to plug answers in Genesis because they don't pay me, uh, but one of the ways they, one of their teachings, oftentimes they talk about, you know, what are you building your foundation on? What are you building your, your beliefs, I should say? What foundation upon which are you building your beliefs? Is it what man says, or is it what God's word says? That's why they're so critical of defending the Bible from Genesis 1, verse 1, because it's the foundation. Those opening chapters of that opening book form the foundation of our entire faith structure. And if that foundation is, is uh, ruined because of man's opinions, of whether it's millions of years, whether it's evolution, whether it's genders can whatever you know if you if you change out what god's word says and you put it on man's opinions that's the shifting sand and then and then it doesn't matter what you say about christ and salvation and love and such because you're built on a foundation of lies and half truths and all kinds of things how do you build on the foundation and what kind of foundation do you have now note here paul says that the household of god is I know this is bad English, is having been built. <laughs> so you've got, you've got that, in a sense, that passive uh, uh, nature to it. We don't build the church. The church is being built, having been built. The church doesn't build itself. We don't build the church. Who builds the church? Christ builds the church, right? Matthew 16, 18, where he says, on this foundation the foundation of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Upon that foundation, I will build my church. 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, In a similar language that we see here in Ephesians chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, Paul, Peter, not Paul, Peter, right? Because it's First Peter. Paul did not write First Peter. <laughs> uh, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 4, coming to him, that is Christ, as to a living stone, Christ is a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up. Again, you've got that same language, right? Having been built, you are being built up. A spiritual house, 
a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not only the foundation, he is the architect of the church, he builds the church. Uh, again, going back to 1 Corinthians 3, Paul will say that he and Apollos and all the other teachers, we, are, we work under him. We, you know, he is the master architect. We, we also are co-laborers, but we work under him. But notice, it's not the foundation is Christ by himself. Christ is the key part of it, but the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Now, there's some debate here as to what kind of prophets are we talking about. Are these the Old Testament prophets? More than likely not. We are talking here about New Testament prophets. How do you know that? Well, if you just look over at chapter 4 of Colossians or Ephesians, here... Uh, Paul, quoting from, I believe it's Psalm 69, uh, in verse 8, he quotes Psalm 68. Uh, Psalm 68, 18, he quotes there, when he ascended, that is Jesus. He's, he's bringing an interpretation of Psalm 68 that you might not have normally noticed if you read Psalm 68 by itself. But here, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, when he, that is Jesus, ascended on high... He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So when Jesus ascends on high, he says he gives gifts to men. So he's using this in the context of spiritual gifts, right? Then you could, uh, verses 9 and 10 are parenthetical. He's dropped down to verse 11. He says, and he, that is Christ himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. These giftings to the church are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And then you'll see, what do they do? They equip the saints. They, they edify the saints. They do the work of the ministry. They do all these things. But these are given to the church. Apostles, prophets. If these were the Old Testament prophets, you might, you know, you might think that he might change the order. Talk about the prophets first. I'm not saying that the Old Testament prophets aren't foundational. But in this new covenant era, these are also New Testament prophets. These are people who spoke prophetically. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. We looked at this when we looked at 1 Corinthians uh, some time ago. But in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, again, here we see, and God has appointed these in the church. So this is specifically speaking about the church age. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. And so on and so forth. So these are... New Testament prophets. Second thing you might want to ask, and we kind of looked at this um, in times past, are the apostles and prophets still functional today? I would say no. Yeah, question. I don't want to say it's not. Um, I, th- I think they are foundational as well, but I, th- I think that 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how he gave to the church right. apostles and prophets. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, we would be foolish to say that the Old Testament prophets were not foundational, right, as well. But I think, in, I think specifically he, he's referring to New Testament prophets in that. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't want to be dogmatic on that, you know. But are these apostles and prophets functional today? And I would say no. Why? Because they're foundational. Once the foundation is laid, do you lay it again? 
Well, not unless your city's been raised, right? You know, if you, you look at some of these, I've been watching a lot of these kind of like archaeological, you know, uh, videos on, on Bible history, and you know, you see the layers of buildings, right? You know, one city was built on another, was built on another. You know, you could see the history there. But no, once you build a foundation, you don't lay it again, right? The apostles and the prophets are uh, foundational. Now, the key part of that foundation is Christ, who is described here as the chief cornerstone. That word for chief cornerstone or cornerstone or the chief stone is only used here and in that passage we just looked at not too long ago, 1 Peter 2, this time verse 6. There, Peter talks about Christ. He says, uh, and there he quotes, uh, this is from um, Isaiah 28, 16. Uh, Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. There's that word. Elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And then later on in verse 7, he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then again, he quotes from uh, Isaiah 8.14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Again, that word cornerstone used here, used in 1 Peter 2.6, speaking of Christ. He is, the, he is the, the, that critical stone that makes sure the building is stable and to make sure that the building is square. Every building has a cornerstone, which is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, what did I resolve to do? I resolved to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. So by saying that the apostles and the prophets are foundational is to say that the church is apostolic. It is apostolic. So there you have all four qualities. The church is one, one new man. It is holy. It is comprised of the saints. It is Catholic. It is no longer confined to a geopolitical region. And it is apostolic. It is based on the apostolic teachings that Christ gave to his apostles. Remember, we looked at this last week in our sermon. Uh, Jesus as the one who was sent, he says, now I send you. As the Father has sent me, now I send you into the world. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And finally, as I need to move on here, point three, the church is a dwelling place of God, verses 21 and 22. In whom, that is in Christ, the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together, Again, you've got those words there. Uh, fellow citizens fitted together, built together. All of those have that soon prefix. In whom you are being fitted or built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Paul concludes chapter 2 of the, book, or of the book of Ephesians by saying that the church is a holy temple. A holy temple. In fact, that word there for holy temple is... Uh, speaks of uh, the word in Greek, naos, means the, the holy place. The, not just the, the temple grounds as a whole, it's the, the holy place where all of the work was done, the prayers, the offerings, the, the atoning sacrifices. The church is now the naos, is the holy, holy temple unto the Lord. Of course, the in whom points us back to Christ in verse 20. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and then in whom now the whole building is being 
fitted together. So you've got union with Christ, communion with the saints, being fitted together, being joined closely together. That's what the word literally means. Uh, If you look at chapter 4, verse 16, uh, from whom, again, Christ, the whole body being joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. So here, Paul is using the metaphor of the body being joined together by the sinews and the joints and everything that joins a body together. Well, here he's saying now you are being fitted together. And notice growing. The church is, you know, even though he's using the metaphor of a temple, there's that organic kind of uh, uh, concept there. Growing. The church grows. Right? You know, if you've been to Europe, you see the architecture of some of these buildings and you see the, arch- the layout of the cities. You know, I, lived, I grew up and lived in Chicago. Chicago's laid out on a grid. Okay, streets are straight. You've got 90-degree angles on the corners, and everything's built out like that. You go to some of these older cities, and the streets go like this, and they're all over the place, and buildings start off like this, and they have additions, and it's like, you know, there's like almost sometimes seems like there's no rhyme or reason to how these buildings expand. Well, here the Paul, again, is saying this, this church is an organic uh, entity it grows as more and more of those living stones are being brought together and added to the structure. So holy temple in the Lord, we've got union and com- uh, with Christ, communion together with one another, growing this organic thing. And as I said, here you have the third great metaphor uh, for the uh, in the Bible that describes the church. Uh, we looked at uh, earlier in chapter 1, 22 and 23, where Paul there says, And he, Christ, put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. So you've got the metaphor of the body. I already pointed out in chapter 5, you've got the metaphor of Christ as the bridegroom. Chapter 5, verse 23, For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. So you've got body and bride there together. Here you've got the church as the temple. The church as the temple. And of course, what is the purpose for the, of the temple? It is to dwell, for God to dwell, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place. Chapter 2, verse 22. A dwelling place of God in the spirit. That's what the purpose of a temple is. So again, in whom, union, we are built together, communion of the saints, for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The Spirit is dwelling in the people of God. And this pictures, if you will, what you see uh, in the Old Testament, right? Uh, Think of the end of chapter 40 of Exodus. You've got all those chapters that talk about, you know, all the chapters that you kind of skim over as you're reading through the latter half of Exodus that talk about, you know, the type of yarn they're supposed to make and the making of the ephod and the making of this and the making of that. And you're like, okay, you know, your eyes start to roll back in your head. And then it's all built at the end of chapter 40. And they do an offering and all of a sudden, the glory cloud of God comes down and dwells over the tabernacle that has been erected. The tabernacle, the dwelling place of God has been built and God comes down in His cloud and dwells on it. Same thing in 1 Kings chapter 8. Right? No longer is there a mobile tent moving through the wilderness. Solomon, well, first David has it in his heart to build a temple, and then God says, no, your son's going to do it. 
And then Solomon builds the temple. He prays. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, again, the glory cloud of God comes and descends upon the newly built temple. The house has been built. God comes to dwell in it. Same thing here. The church is a holy temple. The Spirit of God dwelling in our midst. So you have a progression here of this Emmanuel principle I was talking about earlier. God dwelling with His people, typified in the Old Testament, actualized in Christ, right? God, Christ is God in flesh, tabernacling, chapter 1, verse 14 of John's Gospel, tabernacling with His people, dwelling amongst His people, taking on flesh, tenting with us, right? Actualized in Christ, spiritualized in the church, and then eventually realized in the new heavens and the new earth, where there you see there is no temple, right? You remember that from Revelation 21-22. In the new heavens and new earth, there is no temple. Why? God is there. The new heavens and new earth is the temple because of the, the dimensions. Again, the dimensions of the new heavens and new earth. It's, it's a perfect cube, which is just like the holy place. So typified in the Old Testament, actualized in Christ, spiritualized in the church, realized in the new heavens and the new earth. So as we finish chapter 2 here, we see the glory of Christ in the life of the church is realized when all believers, Jew and Gentile, are being built up together, growing in this uh, holy temple of the Lord. The problem, of course, is in our flesh, right? We sometimes work at odds with this Emmanuel principle. Sometimes we work at odds of this building together. Sometimes we like to erect man-made barriers uh, and, and, and put up walls and such and, and you know, put purity tests in the way. You're not reformed because you don't believe this. You're not a Christian because you don't believe that or you don't believe exactly as I do or so on and so forth. We erect these walls and, and Christ is like, no, you, know, you are one holy Catholic and apostolic. I'm building my church. I'm adding the living stones. I'm building it up together with one another into a temple. And our takeaway from this is that God is fulfilling His eternal plan that we saw earlier in chapter 1. God is fulfilling His eternal plan. He is working. He is making us alive together with Christ. He is drawing us near by His blood. He is making us fellow citizens. And He is building us up together into this temple. And of course, the good news is that for those are in Christ, our salvation is secure, right? I mean, it's not like God's going to say, okay, I put this brick in, and it's like, I don't like that brick anymore. I'm going to knock that brick out. I'm going to put another brick in. No. Once you're here, this is, this is, again, is accomplishing all things according to his purpose. Those who are far off have now been brought near. Uh, I want to close at least the lesson part of this. Uh, if you look at John chapter 6, uh, talks about you know the security we have here in Christ, John chapter six verses thirty seven to forty. God is accomplishing this. Remember, we don't build the church; the church doesn't build itself. Christ is building His church. And in John chapter six verse thirty seven, Jesus here says, "All that the Father gives me will come to me." And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down 
from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is the will of him who sent me? This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. As God is building you together into his holy temple, you are secure because it is God who is doing it. It is the Spirit who is making you alive. It is the blood of Christ who has brought you near. And all of these things are working together for the glory of God. So I'll stop here. Uh, next time, in two weeks for me at least, uh, we will have Sunday school next week, just won't be me. Uh, we're going to look probably, at least right now, initially, the first seven verses of chapter 3 of Ephesians.